0: Welcome back to part two of the podcast. I'm Jeffrey Madoff here with Dan Sullivan, and we're going to talk about anything and everything.
1: Well, you know, I mean, first of all, there's some businesses, and they're not very interesting businesses to me, where the listening was done 50 years ago, and all you're doing is providing an answer that's been tested out again and again. I don't think you can teach someone to listen who isn't interested in what the other side says. I'm has. sorry,
0: what did you just say? I,
1: I don't think you can. Ah, that was a joke.
0: That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Would you just give me a little visual sign next time before, <laughs> before you're going to tell a joke? But I think that the big thing is, I mean, how long does it take you when you meet someone new to grasp whether they're a listener or not? Pretty quick. You know, and-, and I would say it's- if it's really confusing, it may take a minute.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, No, I just think there's an instinctive feel that you got that I'd just like to know what's going on in this person's world. Yeah, I agree. Whether there's any sale there or not, I would just like to get a feel. Because I've never felt that I lost anything by listening to another person. And it turned out that there wasn't really going to be any business
0: there. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, for instance, raising money for the play. I am much more savvy now than I was a few years ago when I started on this journey. But still, I get surprised. But for the most part, you know, when you meet people, I think if they start by just trying to pitch themselves, that they don't ask any questions of you or about you. And in a sense, they're just trying to sell themselves. I think that causes a lot of us to just turn off, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, you're just getting this one way wave. And what they're really trying to do isn't inform; They're trying to sell. But I think if you show an interest, a true interest, and I completely agree with you, is that you're going to learn something and you're going to get something out of it. Even if what you learn is, you know, this is not a client. Or you learn, this person's got really interesting insights into things. You're never going to know any of that stuff if you're only concerned with your own agenda.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is you have to understand that whatever the person has to say about their life, I mean, if they'll share it with you, that's their number one responsibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, anything that someone says about their life, you you know, this is what I'm dealing with. You know, that's mainline. I mean, what they're talking about is the thing that they get up in the morning and they're the only person on the planet that's responsible for what happens before they go to bed that night. So one of the things that I find is very, very interesting and it's a trick and it's fallen into place with the way that we do our presentations for a strategic coach, our best number one salesperson, top seller So Dan, you have three veterans. So what we do is we have 125 new people. And then I have three people who've been in the program. And we try to get someone, it's maybe a year or two they've been in the program, another person six or seven years. And then if we can, we get somebody who's into their, you know, like 15 or 16 years. Okay. And completely different industries. You want them from completely different industry. And we always mix it up gender wise. And if we can mix it up other ways. We do it that way. So throughout the presentation, it was a two-hour presentation. This is the one that before we started the podcast today, I was just telling you a big success, a breakthrough that we had had using Zoom. And I would just say to one person saying, you know, what things look like. You started Strategic Coach 15 years ago. And in terms of how you felt about your capabilities back then coming into your very first workshop, who hadn't been in the program, and how you're looking back now, what are the three things that if you had told yourself that this was going to happen 15 years from now, you wouldn't have believed it? You wouldn't have believed it. And then they tell a story before and after, and nothing sells like before and after in terms of human experience. But, The way you sell something to someone is find out what the before is right now. (laughs) In other words, most people, if they're interested in talking to you, they're in their before state. There's an after they're trying to get to. And if you can just ask them, you know, where are things right now? And let's say three years down the road where you want them to be. I have to tell you, if you can just listen to what they say and reflect on what they say and ask questions for them, you've got them for as long as you want them. Because nobody gives them a chance to think this way. Nobody gives them a chance to talk this way.
0: And I think that's always been important in whatever relationship. Yeah. You know, whether it's with my wife or whether it's with a possible client or just a possible new friend. And, you know, the other thing about it is it's kind of basic as I'm thinking about it. But it's also just being polite. Yeah. Since
1: you know we have a common love about theater, I'm gonna tell you a story that happened to me and I think it was probably about 1980. I think I reflected on this in a previous podcast, but I was going for a client call by train from Toronto to a town in Kitchener. It was called Kitchener in Ontario. Kitchener, Waterloo is one of the big high-tech centers of Canada. It's not the Silicon Valley of Canada, but it's a high tech center. They say they're the Silicon Valley, but actually they're not. No orange trees, just doesn't have Silicon Valley. And a very tall, slim woman sits across the seat from me. So you have facing seats and knew who it was. It was Maggie Smith, the British actress. And she was on the way from Toronto to Stratford because there's a Stratford, Ontario that has a Shakespeare. It's got three or four theaters and it's a big deal in Canada. And so she became famous, came up through Stratford in England. She's one of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. So I started talking to her. I said, are you on the way to Stratford? And she said, yes. She says, you know who I am? I said, yeah, I'm aware of it. But I said, I have a question. I've never been able to ask. What's it like for you who really grew up in a Shakespearean environment. And then you are have a long career with the Shakespeare theater in the UK, you know, and some of the greatest actors in the world, you've met them on the way through and that's there now. What's it like going to a new place that's not been around very long, has theaters? And I said, one is it what's the difference in your experience of doing plays back in uh, Stratford and Stratford here? So she talked about it and she said, well, you know, it's really, really interesting. She says, I get to do different things in the two places and it kind of expands me. She says, there's muscles that I get to use here because I'm accepted more as someone who's almost in a coaching role or a director role here than I would be back in England. And she said, but the other thing is that even though I have a reputation now, sometimes I'm part of the attraction back in England, but here I'm the attraction. And she says, quite frankly, that feels really good. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, really, really blunt. And I said, that's really great. And I said, so, how important for you is not to compare them, but just to treat them as uniquely different and you get to do uniquely different things." Oh, she said, that's absolutely the way you have to look at it. She says, and I've been to other Stratfords too. She says, there's other Stratfords in the world and I've done that before. But I got her going and then, you know, just kept asking her questions and questions. She got off first and she said, I want to tell you, this has been one of my best railroad trips ever. And that was it, you know, no, well, you know, let's look each other up, none of that, you know. But it was just an interesting thing that all I had done is asked her to compare experiences in her lifetime, and human beings love comparing
0: experiences. Well, what they love more than that, I think, which is what you demonstrated, is when somebody shows true interest. Yeah.
1: Well, I showed some knowledge, too. Yes. I mean, it was like, Maggie Smith, what do you do for me?
0: <laughs> That's when she gets off a few stops early.
1: After she yeah. But is that Margaret? I mean, is it Margaret? Well, I mean, what's Maggie, you know, and everything. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the thing is, I try not to be a fan. Right. You know, I try not to be a fan. Oh, I saw you in such and such. And that was so amazing. I just don't have the stomach for that, first of all. I mean, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that, so I don't deliver that. But to a certain extent, Jeff, is it any different? I mean, the way you go about business, is it any different the way you go about
0: anything in life? No, I don't really separate them. You know, I look to establish some common ground to understand the other person. I listen to what they have to say. You know, if I have a certain objective when I'm meeting them, but I think that the basic protocols of human interaction, to me, aren't different in business than they are in regular life. Mm -hmm. it's, It's interesting. So at a point when Margaret, my wife and I, were going through a challenging time, she said something to me that really went to my bone marrow. She said, you know, if you were having a problem with a client, you would spend the time and find a way to solve that problem are you willing to do that with us and she was right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i think there is let's say a difference in the intimacy level so to speak but i think that again it's about showing interest like what you did with maggie you know To her, it wasn't just an opportunity to talk about herself and compare things. Here's somebody who had some knowledge, who was asking interesting questions and showing an interest in who she was. In a relationship, whether you're going through a difficult time, where it's even more important to listen, Mm -hmm. and you want to listen less, because it is difficult and volatile at those times, I think that it's really important. So maybe there's a difference... In amplification. Mm-hmm. But I think the general protocols of the relationship, which is listening, showing interest, being polite, engaging, being present, all those things, I think across the board, those are true statements, be it a business relationship, a friendship relationship, or a more intimate relationship.
1: Depending on how you got started, you know, and I think it shows up a lot. I go back to the, we had one. I think, one whole podcast earlier on just how much what we're doing now was preset at a very young age. I mean, the way we went about things, the way we achieve things. But more than that, what we just love doing, and that if you get get paid for doing just what you love doing, that would be a great life. And I think that entrepreneurism falls into that category far, far more than anything that happens outside of entrepreneurism.
0: I think that you're correct with the following caveat that I would give, which is, I think, and you were alluding to this at the beginning, is that I think that a lot of people enter into entrepreneurship not having a clue to how difficult it can be. As a result, they become disillusioned because they weren't realistically prepared Mm -hmm. for what it is that they were going to be facing. I remember back when I was in college, I was working in this clothing store. And there was a guy shoplifting who I caught. And when I caught him, I got the clothes back. And I said, give me your student ID. And he said, what for? And I said, because I'm asking you. And I caught you in a criminal act. And I want your ID because I'm going to be reporting this if you ever come back into the store again. And he said, well, you got the clothes back. I said, no, this isn't a game of tag. (laughs) You know, this (laughs) is a business and you're stealing from me. He said, well, you don't pay for the clothes anyhow. And what I realized was he and a lot of other people, this is, of course, where we were young, but we're still in college, think that somehow stuff just shows up in a store and the store gets it for free, you know, and, you know, people start acting out at a young age, like not respecting other people's property. Yeah. And not even realizing it's other people's property. And if they can get away with something, they will. And the reason I'm mentioning that is I think that in that same naive way, some might call it stupid, there are people that start off down that road of entrepreneurship because they think, oh, this is great. I can control my own time. I get all this stuff wholesale or you know, whatever it is. But they don't have a real sense of how consuming being an entrepreneur is mm-hmm. and the challenges that they're going to face. So I think that once you are an entrepreneur, people can learn from people such as yourself. But I don't think that there's a lot of people that ask the right questions before they even start.
1: Yeah. It has to do with a more of a fundamental life question rather than an entrepreneur question. I don't like having my time controlled by other people, number one. Never did. I I just have a passionate disinterest in having my time in any way controlled by other people. And I think that that more than anything. But then the question is, if you're in a time that's not being controlled by someone else, then you have to be the controller, okay? And immediately, there isn't a government program for <laughs> for you to do that. Well, there has been over the last couple of years. But basically, it comes back to wanting to control your own way in life, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of be the, the agent, you know, for your own life, It's funny, I just am finishing one of my little books, my quarterly books, and it's called American Happiness. It's a mindset book, so I have eight mindsets. The subtitle is Eight Mindsets Enabling You to Bet Your Future on Yourself. And my set that entrepreneurs want to bet on themselves. That basically, you, mm-hmm. you know you're going to have to bet on something, whether you go into the job market or you go into any market. You're going to have to bet on somebody doing something. And I think that really what you're doing is that you want to bet on you being the someone who does something. You're not betting on someone else to take care of you.
0: Right. Yeah, which comes down to control issues. I
1: think it's very much control. And it's not wanting to control other people, it's wanting to control you.
0: Right. You know, I think there's a lot of interesting issues that can come off of that for a future podcast that we do, because I think that's really an an interesting area, you know, to talk about. And, you know, what do you do? There's questions that arise when one's individual freedom also impinges on others and what is the sort of greater good, Mm -hmm. if that's even a question at all for some people. So I think that would be a great area to get into. But I want to ask you another thing about the entrepreneurship. And one of the things that can trip people up badly is they don't know how to price what it is they're selling, right? So how do you establish what you sell, whether it's your ideas, which are much harder because, you know, it's not like, well, I got Dan's ideas, but I also have Jimmy's ideas. Whose ideas should I pay for? Mm -hmm. You know, so how do you determine what to charge? Because I think that if you get into the price competition game, you're setting yourself for a life of agony (laughs) because there's always going to be somebody if you're selling a product or even like with me with production services and so on you know just setting a price that you can both live with and grow and not being afraid to ask for what you think you're worth and not being insane about what that is because if you're too insane and your price is too much out of what the market will tolerate you're not going to sell so do you first of all two-part question do you see that much people not knowing how to price wages they're selling. And how do you counsel people on that?
1: Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you something. Before we start talking about pricing, I'm going to give you my formula. I have a formula for pricing. Okay, And so I just want to tell you my formula first. Think of a price that scares you and then add 20%. And everybody laughs. They think that's really funny. Okay, And I said... Okay, so let's just take my formula apart. You're going to tell somebody the price. So of the two of you, which of you is scared of the price? You're not scared of the price because you haven't heard it yet. Right, right. So basically, the person who's going to say the price is the person who's scared of the price. Okay, so just to offset that you don't underprice yourself, add 20% to it. You're already scared to say the price. Okay. So why don't we make you feel easy about the scary price by adding 20%? Okay? <laughs> and they say, well, what if they nod and don't blink and you say per quarter? <laughs> <laughs> and they say, if they don't blink, you say first year up front. <laughs> you know, because first of all, pricing is entirely subjective, it's entirely. Psychological and it's subjective. There is no right price except for the price that's agreed upon. Right, right. Yeah, that's the only right price, the price that actually is agreed upon. And it's a confidence capability. The first time you price it and it scared you, but the other person agreed, your confidence goes up. It'll be easier to say that same price the next time. The other thing is that. If you get the price you want, you are naturally inclined to double the value that comes along with that.
0: You mean over-delivering, so to speak? If
1: you get the price that you want, you as the seller, and I'm talking about the seller here, then you will over-deliver because you want that to be the norm the next time you go back out into the marketplace.
0: And I think, by the way, that over-delivery, which I think is something that I try to do whenever I am involved in a transaction and I think about like when I go to a restaurant and the chef sends something over you know where the chef uh, has sent this his compliments this is a new thing on the menu makes me want to go back to the restaurant oh
1: you know well not only that but you know in Britain and the European Union now they've outlawed tipping
0: is it built into the cost?
1: Yeah. Which to me is just the cost. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And the reason is that what you're saying, we don't want any of our staff people differentiating themselves from the other staff people.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to some restaurant owners here. And it's interesting because I asked that question because that's happened with the outdoor restaurants and it being harder you know, to get staff and so on during this period. But one of the things that they've said, which I found interesting is, there's a lot of people that are really chintzy tippers. So if you do put it into the price, and it varies from 18 to 22% in the city, then they are assured that they've got a pool of tips that compensates at the very least fairly. You know, their help. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, if you have extraordinary service, you still can't do more than oh, yeah. that. Yeah. But I think that, you know, it's that's a part of it too. It's to protect the people. Yeah. And we've both seen people where there's a couple at a restaurant or a group at a restaurant that will stay there forever. Yeah. Don't surrender the table. And what they end up giving the wait staff certainly doesn't pay for the lost income they've got because those people stayed. An hour and a half longer than they really needed to
1: just up a setting
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah well you know to me it's all about individual you know like i don't care about how they're all getting paid but the one who gives me great service i want them to yeah. be rewarded i don't have any social goals about that but if someone is really attentive and really knowledgeable, and they're just kind of aware of what kind of experience I'm having and they're enhancing it. I want that person to be rewarded.
0: Oh, I agree. And so I'll tell you what I do. I do two things. One is I always get that person's name and request them when I'm going back to the restaurant that I would like to be in that person's area. And the other thing is Often, not all the time, I can't say I do it all the time, but I've done it a fair number of times, is I will ask to speak to the manager. And first, I will compliment the person and say, you know, you've really helped make this a wonderful experience, and thank you. And I will go to the manager and just say, I want you to know that the waiter that we had so enhanced the experience there because they made us feel welcome. And you should just be aware of that. Yeah. Thank you. Because I think that's another way in addition to reward somebody yeah. helping their profile, you know, at the place. The flip side of that, by the way, is I find it really hard and offensive when I've been to dinner with people, and this has never been with friends, but it has been business dinners, where they treat the wait staff, you know, as if they're essentially invisible or just rude or walk by and they'll go they want some more water. And it's like, they treat them horrible. Yeah.
1: I can't stand being around that. The one that I've done, and I've done it twice in my lifetime. So it's not, I really got bad service. I really got bad service. And so when I left, I went to the maitre d' or whatever. And I said, here's $20 for the pool. You know, I know you have a pool for uh, tips for everybody else, but I can't give it to that person. That was really bad service. To us. But I don't want you to mm. know that I'm not a cheapskate. I'm not a cheapskate, but that was bad service and I can't give that person the money, but I know you have a pool for all your other service, so why don't you just
0: put that in that service? Which is great because you didn't want to penalize the other people for that person being Well, not only that,
1: I don't want to be an asshole.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, to put it basically,
1: that somebody, you know, if I'm going back to that restaurant, it's not even if I'm going back to that restaurant again, that's just that I just don't want to have a, a negative. I don't have bad karma. Anyway,
0: but these things we're talking about, to me, this has a lot to do with entrepreneurship. Exactly. You know, if people are thinking about doing business with you, welcome them. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: And, you know, I've been to restaurants and you've been to them. It's a classic New York or a big city where the waitstaff are not trying to become film directors. (laughs) They're professional waitstaff. Right. They've made a career out of it. They'll be there 40, 45 years sometimes at the same restaurant. Okay. I talked to one of them, not while they were waiting. And I said, in a really good year, how well do you do? And he said, quarter million. Wow.
0: Quarter million. And how much of million. that is unreported? You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And good for them, by the way. Yeah. You know, they've earned it. Yeah. But,
1: you know, the restaurant doesn't have to worry about anything if they've got about five of these people. You know, I mean, they'll have a party come in, they have 20 people, you know, and they'll go through very expensive bottles of wine and they'll they'll give a huge tip at the end, you know, and everything like that. This is big business, you know, but these are pros. In Toronto, you know, it's a real turnover with the restaurants. You know, it's almost like the waiter or waitress comes up and says, I don't want you to get any thoughts of mistaking me for a waiter. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a film writer. This is just something, you know, that I have to do. I'm kind of forced to be here tonight. So I just want to let you know that don't mistake me for a waiter. You know, I said, oh, uh, I'd already been clear about that before you told me.
0: <laughs> Although I have to say in New York, and there are lots of wait staff that are writers, dancers, actors, and so on. Yeah. And because in New York, you don't know who's going to be at that table, it's, I would say unusual to get somebody who isn't friendly and engaging yeah. because that friendly and engaging person could be a gatekeeper.
1: Yeah.
0: And, you know, you're smart enough not to alienate people with attitude. Yeah. Although that does happen, but it can. But, you know, I think the interesting well, the thing- the
1: power of a good stereotype is that it's partially true.
0: Right. That's right. <laughs> and, hmm. you know, to tie this back into the mistakes entrepreneurs make, There is that model we've just been talking about where some people may think, you know, so why'd they go off on this tangent about restaurants, wait staff, and all of that? But it's really a template. You know, what things make you feel good?
1: Well, the resource is the dining experience that's taking place. Mm -hmm. And you can either take that to a higher level or you can take it to a lower level. And I think it's more and more the resource that's taking place in our economy, period, is experience. It's an experience economy. Mm -hmm. Good experience, bad experience. That's right. And that's the resource. You can make the experience a really great experience. I I mean, it was like my train trip with Maggie Smith. I had taken an experience that she's had frequently, and she kind of told me that I had taken the
0: experience to a higher level. So... Who knows if that happened in the United States, we might not be talking and you might be running Amtrak. <laughs> you know, you know, and I think that the thing is that there's lots of choices out there. Yeah. So why does somebody choose to do business with you or me or anybody yeah. else? Yeah. And you have to give them a reason. Yeah. Great experience. That's right. Yeah. So
1: just to wrap up here, Jeff, I would say that the prominent go or no-go for the people who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs, I would say it's about 90% mindset and about 10% sellable skills, you know, that you have great mindset about what you're doing.
0: Well, I would agree with you. And I think that mindset is having a realistic assessment of what it means to go into business and look at other aspects of your life and look at the behaviors that attract you because those same behaviors will attract others to your business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, true to our credo, this has been about anything and everything. (laughs) Great talking to you, Dan. Thank you. Terrific, thank you. Yeah,
1: we'll see you next
0: time. Bye. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.